I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. You're listening to Muses. My name is Lynx, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Muses. We are the podcast that's all about the incredible women of music history. I was going to say rock and roll history, but we cover way more than that now. So music history in general. And this is going to be a a crazy one today. I want to thank my friend Ellen for joining me. Ellen, we've had this conversation more than once in the past like two weeks, but do you want to share a bit of our origin story? I will. I will share the Colesnose version of our origin story. We met 10 years ago in a writing workshop facilitated by Pamela Debar. And as I'm sure you have told on, on this podcast before, you and our other friend Allison reached out to her and brought her to Toronto. And we got together a group of women to write who are we are still friends with pretty much to this day. That like changed the trajectory of my life. It absolutely did. It changed mine too. And it's interesting because it's not just like great friendships that have come out of it, but we met Lisa there and she got me these incredible concert gigs. And yeah. you, know, you work at these concert venues too. And Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It's like now we all have jobs in live music. And yeah. like and we didn't when this started, but like I think that's probably deep down like what we all would have wanted. So For yeah, sure. it's pretty cool. It's that there's been some real full circle moments, I think, with with that group and that crew but 
yeah, that's our origin story. And and it's a beautiful one. It is a beautiful one. And thanks to Miss P. Yeah. It's amazing how she attracts such incredible women. And yeah, every time we get, all get to hang out together, it's just it's such yeah. a incredible energy. And there is, there's something like intangible about it that has something to do with music, obviously, live music, probably, especially. And I don't want to say like love, but feelings. Yeah. You know, being, feeling alive, I think. And that's, it's the same, it's the same feeling that's cultivated in the workshops. And so, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty special. It is really special. I also wanted to talk a little bit first about you as an artist, because I want all of my listeners to go check out your work because you are incredible. You do more than just architecture. You do body, anatomy. You can do anything. You're you're incredible. And I've actually commissioned more than one piece from you. Shanti has a beautiful creation of yours up in her house that I got for her. Tell me, like, I don't even know, like, were you always into that? Like, how did that even come to be? I've always done art. Like, I, I really love to, like, draw and paint and stuff growing up. And I did art all through high school. And then I was studying art history in university. And I started studying architecture and the history of architecture. And I needed a visual component for a project that I was doing. And I couldn't figure out how to, like, make a poster or something on line like or like on a computer like I just I'm not I'm not really a computery person so I decided to just like do a pencil drawing of the building that I was studying or writing about if it was writing an essay about it or something like that and I still remember which building it was it was on college street hmm. and it is right at college in Elizabeth it's the Canadian blood services building now but it used to be the old children's hospital so I drew that and it turned out like, I don't know, I, I just I really liked doing it. I was able to focus on it. And I was having some trouble focusing at the time. So yeah, and then and then I started drawing more buildings. And I found that like, I was finishing the pieces to completion, like I wasn't just like starting and then like, kind of letting it go. But I was just like, I really like, enjoy doing this. Mm -hmm. And it helped me in my studies as I was studying buildings and architecture in school and trying to I was at U of T. And then after I graduated, I started, I was still drawing buildings and like doing commissions and stuff. And then I started becoming a Pilates instructor. So I started studying anatomy and then I kind of like drew bodies and bones and stuff to, again, help me learn about them. Yeah, you are incredible. And tell listeners where they can find your work. You I most, I don't actually have a website. So I, you can find me on Instagram at Ellen Fielding underscore. And that's probably the, the best way to see it all because that is where it all goes pretty much. I will make sure to post a link to that as well. I think you're just a fantastic artist and I hope listeners check you out and you. You know, maybe get a commission done or. Hey, yeah. This is going to be a wild ride because today we are talking about Keith Moon and his last girlfriend, Annette Walter-Lax. She recently wrote a book that I read called The Last Four Years. 
which is the time that she spent with him his last four years. Okay. Are you ready, Ellen? You I'm ready. ready. For this? Yes. So Annette Walter Lax was born June 17th, 1955. She grew up with her parents and her sister in the suburbs of Stockholm. She really doesn't go that much into detail about her childhood. She kind of skips to her early teen years. She says she was a quiet, shy kind of girl, very tall, very bony. It's interesting with women who are just so unbelievably gorgeous. You hear that a lot. Like, I was shy, I was bony, awkward. Yeah, like I was an ugly duckling. Like looking at photos of her, she's stunning. She's like a, yeah. a stunning, graceful swan. Yeah, hard to imagine awkward. But she felt awkward for a time in her body. But she did always have these dreams of being beautiful and modeling. Like that was her childhood dream type of thing. Same, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we all wanted to be a supermodel. So before puberty fully took hold she would actually pad her body, even though she says it was very obvious that she was padding herself, but she just didn't care because she so desperately like wanted to be that, what her ideal, I guess, of a, a perfect woman was. Mm -hmm. Thankfully for her, that all changed by the time she turned 15. Suddenly, all the boys were noticing her. She grew much more confident and began to take shape of her beautiful self. Mm -hmm. She lost the padding. She grew her own. <laughs> yes, exactly. Annette and her friends were obsessed with the swinging London scene. She would go out dancing all the time. She was listening to all the hot British bands. And her and her friends would talk and dream about one day making it to London. And her goal, of course, was to go to London to pursue her dreams of modeling. She actually tried to get her foot in the door at the modeling agencies in Sweden, but found it incredibly difficult to stand out among all the other gorgeous, blonde-haired Swedish beauties, right? Yeah, so hard to be Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> she knew she had to kind of make a move out of Sweden to achieve her goal. So in April of 1973, when she was just 17 years old, Annette and two of her friends packed up and made their way to London. They didn't know anyone there. Annette only had 15 pounds to her name. Sorry, 50 pounds to her name. That makes more sense. Even bit better. She packed a couple pairs of jeans, a couple shirts, a blanket that she used as like a jacket. And she just hoped for the best. So they spent a couple weeks living in hostels and money was kind of running low and by the end of a few weeks, her friends were like, nope, we're done. Can't can't live like this. Mm -hmm. So they moved back, but Annette really wanted to achieve her goal. So she said, no, I'm staying. She was determined. She met a man who worked at a Kensington market stall selling jackets, and he began to give her shifts there while she was starting to go around to all the modeling agencies to try to get an agent. That did not take long. After struggling so hard in Stockholm to get noticed in London, her Swedish look, her, the characteristics were considered exotic. So <laughs> soon all of the agencies were like actually fighting over representing her. So Annette was so excited. She began booking things immediately. Her agent really had big things planned for her. They saw you can go all the way. So she had a good team behind her almost immediately. 
In the spring of 74, she was staying with a man named John Montague, who was a friend of her modeling agent. One thing that Annette always used to do when listening to the radio was tap along to the songs. Mm-hmm. Sort of like air drum. Drumming, yeah. Yeah, or on the on a table or something. And he noticed this and how much she connected to the music and was really kind of impressed with her precision and everything. Like she was, she had it. Mm-hmm. And one day he was watching her do that and was like, do you want to meet a real drummer? <laughs> so John then takes her over to Harry Nielsen's flat because okay. Keith Moon was staying there. Okay. Keith had a wife named Kim that he recently split with. And Keith was sort of on a long-term bender at this point. I think Kim was really the love of his life and he messed it up badly and started drinking. Very much so. I mean, he was always a wild guy, but he was not taking care of himself at this point. Let's put it that way. So he meets Annette this, this one night. They go over. Keith immediately becomes obsessed with her. Obviously. Look at her. (laughs) Exactly. She also actually does look kind of like his ex. Kim. Yeah. Uh Very much so. So, and Annette acknowledges this in the book. She's like, yeah, pretty sure he's into me because it reminded him of her. There was one problem that evening, though. Keith was not alone at Harry Nielsen's fat. In fact, he had another Swedish model over at the time. God damn it. Yeah. So tension was like pretty awkward for Annette. The -hmm. girl was clearly not happy with the situation. Obviously. Like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Annette was very uncomfortable. But the night went on. They hung out. They had fun. They went their separate ways. A short while later, she encountered Keith again at a London hotspot called Tramps. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. (laughs) Annette actually happened to be on a date with someone, but the waiter stopped by their table and Keith sent them over an invite to his table and she couldn't resist. Keith was with a bunch of friends, but made room to, for her to sit right next to him. Mm-hmm. Once she sits and gets relaxed, she realizes her date has disappeared. This is because Keith paid the waiter to make sure that her date got out of there. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I would love for anyone to do that for me. Just like remove the obstacles mm. for him. Although that is like kind of manipulative and true, but you know. <laughs> they weren't like a couple couple. It was just like a casual yeah. date. So all good. After Tramps, Keith invited the group to his manager, Kit Lambert's house, because Keith was moving around a lot then. Like Harry Nilsson's flat, his manager's flat. Again, after the divorce and everything, he hadn't set down roots again. Mm-hmm. Keith and Annette had really been connecting at the club. So Annette was pretty surprised when they go to his house and find yet another woman waiting for Keith to return home. What? Not, yeah, not the same one. It turned out to be an actress named Joy Bang. Joy, Joy Bang. Yes, we'll get back to that. Fun fact is that Joy also had a fling with Jimi Hendrix. You can find photos of them online and everything. Right on. Yeah. Well, so, with a name like Joy Bang. I exactly. Mean. Exactly. As you can imagine, Joy was not so pleased to see Annette there. And she stormed upstairs. Keith had to go follow her 
do some damage control. Annette's downstairs. Suddenly, she can hear a bunch of thumping going on upstairs. And when he came back down alone, Keith said, and I'm quoting, I had to give her one to calm her down. (laughs) A a joy bang. (laughs) Exactly. Very apt name. Love it. Wow. So, yeah, for some women, these encounters may have been, like, really putting put off by Keith. Uh-huh. But they didn't really face her because she had no emotional connection to him at the time. And it was more just kind of fascinating to see such a man. She was yeah. like, what is happening? Even her friends and her modeling agent were, like, begging her not to get involved with Keith. Mm-hmm. Because he was known as, like, a... A wild, yeah, crazy man. But she was 18 at this point. Mm-hmm. And was suddenly in the inner circle of one of the wildest rock stars of the time. And oh God, yeah, why would was, you go anywhere? Exactly. It was way <laughs> too alluring to throw away at this point, mm-hmm. especially after she witnessed her first Who concert. Oh, yeah. That happened a few weeks later in the summer of 74. They had been dating for a bit at this point, And Annette was beginning to develop feelings before meeting Keith. Annette wasn't a huge Who fan, but she was absolutely amazed at their live performance, especially at how much Keith really shined. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, the conductor of the band. His energy was unmatched, very spellbounding live. She talks about the relationship between Keith and Pete on stage and their kind of symbiotic collaboration to create this incredible wall of sound and how amazing it was. This wasn't just her first Who concert. It was the first concert that she ever attended. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was absolutely magical. She side stage. She said she was overwhelmed by the fans' reactions. And she hadn't really until that moment realized like just how massive a rock star Keith actually was. Mm-hmm. There's this cute moment when she has this realization standing side stage like, oh, my God, that's my boyfriend. Like. That's, my That's cute. Yeah. I love that. Usually in new relationships, you see the best in someone because that's what they're showing you. Mm-hmm. But it didn't take all that long for Keith's bad side to show up. Mm-hmm. At this point in his life, it was really a downward spiral. His breakup with Kim was a huge blow. And interestingly, Annette never mentions this in the book. And I assume it's because Keith never talked about it with her. But I think one of the main reasons, and I don't know if a lot of people know about this, but in 1970, Keith, while drunk, accidentally ran over his driver and killed him. I think I had heard about that. Yeah. 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 So I know that was kind of something that haunted him. Oh, yeah. And of course, I mean, no doubt that led to more self-medicating and... Mm -hmm trying to forget but yeah she never mentions that in the book but I Mm. think it helps to understand his character a little bit more and what he's going through yeah it also like contextualizes that time exactly yeah that happened I think four years before uh, they met so Mm -hmm. still pretty fresh oh yeah as a podcast network our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. When Keith met Annette, he was actually entering a rehab center and Annette visited him. At the time, she didn't actually realize it was a rehab place. Keith had a huge gash on his wrist from some drunken episode, and she thought he was there for the wound. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. When he was going to go away for six weeks to get rid of this cut on my hand. Yeah. When he was released, though, he went straight back to the booze. Mm -hmm. But Annette's getting to know Keith. She's having fun. She describes his sober self as thoughtful, funny, sweet, attentive. But when drunk, he was really like a polar opposite. Annette first saw his more violent side late that summer. So Pete and Keith went to the States to help support Eric Clapton on his tour for a few shows. Mm -hmm. And Keith invited Annette to come along. So after a long flight, Annette wasn't actually up to go to the first show. Mm-hmm. And she passed out in the hotel room only to be woken up by Pete and another man banging on the door and then carrying an impossibly drunk Keith into the room. Oh, wow. They left her alone with Keith. Keith tried to call room service. When he was told it was too late to order, he went berserk, oh, God. trashed the room, 
Annette had never seen this side of him before and was like literally terrified until Keith finally passed out. She mentions being really shocked at the strength and destruction that he had in him. Mm -hmm. After playing a couple gigs with Clapton, Keith and Annette went to L.A. Keith repeated the same scene, destroying their room at the Beverly Wilshire. They let him stay, and apparently they set him up in a room made of all plastic furniture, like like a child's room. <laughs> he wrecked that one too, though, and then they had to relocate to another hotel, and then they rented a bungalow in Bel Air. So K- Keith could not go anywhere without ruining the place, basically. He sounds like a toddler. Like He sounds like he's going through the terrible twos. That's exactly what I thought the entire time I was reading this book. When he's drunk, he's a child. He's a baby that doesn't get his way and stomps and yells. And How, how old was he at the time? She was 18. He was about 30. Okay. That's yeah. pretty significant. Yeah. It's probably not a surprise that one of the reasons I think Keith felt that he could get away with this kind of behavior is that the bills went to his management, not to him. Oh, yeah. Annette talks about Keith being very cash poor. They really didn't have any money. It was all taken care of by his managers. He was often sued for damages. And I can't imagine how much money he blew on these antics over the years. Wow. At one point later on in their relationship, things were so rough financially that Annette was actually calling her parents for financial help. Keith didn't have cash money. He would, you know, his managers would do everything. After the initial tear of that first night of destruction, Annette basically got used to the antics and the behavior became normalized. At this point also, though, they were living it up. She was this young, beautiful girl from Sweden, now living in L.A. with her rock star boyfriend. It was all new, all exciting. So the good outweighed any red flags that were there for Annette at the time. Also, like you just said, like she was so young. This is her first relationship. Crazy. Yeah. So like I said, they moved to L.A. because Keith at this point was recording a solo album and he started getting into film. Unfortunately, Keith was all about self-sabotage and his drinking and lifestyle was deeply affecting his life at this point. He was always drunk or hungover. He would have to record countless takes. It was he was always frustrated. It just... It wasn't as productive a time as it should have been for him. Mm -hmm. But Annette was having fun. She was meeting all sorts of celebrities that were friends with Keith. She mentions dinner with John Lennon and May Pang, um, Ringo Starr and his girlfriend at the time, Nancy Andrews. Another good friend was Astrid Lundstrom, who was Bill Wyman's girlfriend at the time. They were hanging out at the Whiskey and the Rainbow. Mm -hmm. In the book, she recalls this embarrassing dinner with Ringo and Nancy and Harry Nielsen and his wife where they ordered food. Keith talked, 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 talking so much that his food got cold and then he wanted the waiter to get it reheated. But when he couldn't get the immediate attention, he took off his shoes, stuffed the food in them, stood up on the table and demanded it be warmed. What the fuck? Like, Like a toddler. They were all escorted out of the restaurant. And of course, she was like so embarrassed. Obviously, it's terrible. Yeah. 
even though these things were happening, she just decided to stay and sort of build this life in LA with Keith. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the glamour probably outweighed like what she had to put up with. Exactly. Yeah. They moved out of the bungalow there where they were staying after another lawsuit for damages were filed. <laughs> and they moved into a house that Keith actually bought this time. She really loved that house. They settled in before Keith had to go back to rehearse for the Who's 75, 76 tour. They ended up adopting a lot of animals. They had two dogs and seven rescue cats. Aww. <laughs> she took care of them all when he was gone. She spent a lot of time talking with friends, settling in. At this point, Annette had grown to kind of fully love Keith and was excited for their future, even though she recognized all the red flags there. But Keith was still spiraling downhill, and this is the period where cocaine was becoming a major factor in the music scene. Mm-hmm. If you thought he was erratic before, the cocaine just fueled the fire. Oh, God, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned that Keith was beginning to step into films. He'd done a couple already. That'll be The Day with Ringo Starr. He was in a movie called Stardust. And some interesting producers and directors were actually coming his way. But he always fucked it up on purpose, it seems. Like, you should know better. I don't know if it's, again, self-sabotage or what. Yeah. For instance, Harry Weintraub, a big Hollywood producer, was interested in working with him. And Keith invited him and his wife over to their house. So they're all sitting, hanging out in the living room. And then Keith said he wanted to show them clips from a film. He put on a porno and got a good laugh out of it while Annette was sitting there super embarrassed the producer and his wife are like, what the hell? Annette like, went and hid in the other room for the rest of the night. Like She couldn't take it. Oh. And another time, Sam Peckinpah, huge director, called him for a meeting. And Annette begged Keith, like, don't get drunk. This is incredible. Do it right. But of course, he got blind drunk. And, and I'm quoting from the book. Performed a series of tumbles across Sam's desk and said... If that's not acting, I don't know what is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's like you're purposely fucking it up for yourself. Like, who acts like that yeah. in a meeting? He's just being a clown. Yeah. If all that weren't bad enough, Keith's partying really took a dark side for the relationship as well. He was constantly taking her to these shady parties. They kind of went from going to all the glamorous parties to suddenly going to these, like, dealers houses or yeah you know. sketchy coke parties yes she says that he, he took her to orgies more than once and she was like not interested was he like expecting her to participate she doesn't say that he ever tried to force her to do that or anything and yeah. funny enough he was always so fucked up that he couldn't even get it up That's what I was gonna say, like he probably couldn't get it up like yeah. he's just there for to watch yeah but he did actually get with a lot of groupies not just, like not maybe at these parties but yeah, Annette began to time. find him sometimes with other groupies sometimes oh. in their own home she'd like open a door oh and God. yeah what the fuck it kind of sounded to me like Keith used these groupies at times to make her jealous but honestly she felt very detached from it like huh. it was expected I guess and she noted that it wasn't like he was treating these women better than her uh-huh. they weren't like a threat she never saw them as a threat or anything it right. was just like what yeah. the fuck are you doing well and if she doesn't see them as a threat then she's not going to be jealous so he's exactly. not succeeding in trying to make her jealous precisely 
So for a time, Annette began to kind of live in constant dread of what was going to come next, how far Keith was going to push it. She describes this point in their relationship as living in an asylum. His cocaine addiction and lack of actual cash. Keith was like selling his prized jewelry. He was getting rid of like everything that in the house that was worth something. More than once he OD'd or had OD scares. Mm -hmm. He would also constantly invite random people over to party. So the house was always full of like drugged out strangers. Oh God. Keith actually had a minder at the time named Peter Dougal, as they called him, Butler. Dougal has also written memoirs about his time with Keith Moon. He had been a roadie for The Who and then was like Keith's friend or partner in crime. Not mm-hmm. not getting in trouble with him, but helping to get him out of trouble. His nanny, essentially. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He was whatever Keith needed him to be. But Keith couldn't really be controlled. And even Dougal at times would get to a point where he'd be like, fuck it, I'm leaving and peace out for a couple weeks. And, you know, couldn't couldn't handle him. Everyone needed a break from Keith. At some yeah, point. no shit. Annette also kind of became a minder for him. And people did really rely on her to make sure he was decent enough to get through the day. Mm-hmm. It, it was a lot of pressure. I can't diagnose Keith, but I really wouldn't see be surprised if he were bipolar or manic depressive because he would also have these episodes she's a a kid too like she's like she's still a child pretty much like exactly having to take care of this like adult baby who's having issues yeah and he started to begin to have these episodes where he would attempt suicide and go completely off the rails and everyone would be there trying to help stabilize him he was not an easy man to live with whatsoever for instance one time Annette had a terrible fright when she walked into the bathroom and saw the bathtub full of water and Keith holding the a plugged in hair dryer oh god I saw that on an episode of six feet under I know how that goes (laughs) yeah she had to physically fight him to get it off of him and then he chased her around the house screaming so she was terrified Oh, my God. Yeah. Another time when Dougal was like, nope, I have enough. I'm leaving. Keith threw a tantrum and locked himself in the sauna with the heat on to the max. While Annette and Dougal were outside begging him to get out. And when he finally did, he was just, you know, red as a lobster. Mm, Ouch. At this point, they've been together for like two plus years of all of this madness. It was very toxic, very full of highs and lows. Keith was controlling over Annette as well. As you know, she had these big goals of being a model. But when she started to date Keith, he absolutely refused to accept her modeling. At first, he would interfere with her calls, making sure she didn't get messages about modeling. They fought over it. But Annette says, it was like, you're either in this with me or you're not. It was like an ultimatum. Like, you give it up or you you get out. And she loved him and chose him over her modeling career. Wow. Yeah. It's really sad. But that also like speaks probably to how young she is. Like not that not that a person who's older wouldn't make the same choice, but mm-hmm. I would have done the same thing if I was her. Yeah. Probably. For yeah. sure. Yeah. All of this. And unfortunately, like we've talked about this before, this is why older men get with young women too, because... Mm-hmm. 
they don't because they don't know better yeah of course that kind of attitude all or nothing only applied to her because keith was doing whatever and whoever he wanted all the time she once walked in on him sleeping or having sex with a sex worker in his office and the pimp was outside like waiting when this happened they were at a really low point and it finally broke her she drove away she's like i'm gonna leave him forever but when she came home she found him crying naked a total mess standing in the driveway begging her to stay oh my god i also he was wearing keith had this rommel costume if anyone doesn't know who rommel is like nazi just think Mm -hmm. nazi Mm -hmm. so he was wearing the rommel jacket and no nothing below the (laughs) crying begging her to come back and and she and it worked it worked in the two years that they were together at this point, Keith had destroyed his fi- finances, his health, and was destroying their relationship as well. Keith was throwing tantrums daily. It was a nightmare, but she felt she needed to stay to make sure sh- he was okay. He would still have violent mood swings as well. Annette says that he was never violent with her besides one time when he threw a glass ashtray at her, but it missed her. His ex-wife, though, Kim, wasn't so lucky. In the book, Annette talks about how strange it was that the woman that he loved the most and meant the most to him was the one that he was physically violent with. He did mm-hmm. beat him and broke her nose once. Oh, God. Yeah. Annette did have these amazing little getaways with Keith, though. They would go on holiday more than once, and these memories she really cherishes. He wasn't partying or being an idiot. They were just mm-hmm. together, happy, content. And, of course, when you have those moments with someone like that, that's also what keeps you there because you're like yeah you're you're hanging on to that yeah the who were about to film the kids are all right their documentary keith was a mess during it at one point they were filming at their house and he brought a groupie over locked himself in a room with her for 24 hours while annette and the whole film crew waited on him oh my god yeah (laughs) annette was like finally kind of getting to her breaking point she was considering moving back to england to get out of his life She had a discussion with him and he agreed to go to rehab to help the situation. Mm -hmm. While he was there, he wrote her many letters about how much he loved her, how sorry he was for everything. You know, the usual, like, I promise I'll be better. LA was not that dream paradise that they had envisioned. She really did want to go back to England. And Keith, at this point, I think he had to go back anyway for Who-related stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. So they were discussing it, and then something crazy happened that kind of solidified them moving back. Apparently, I never knew this until I read this book, which was surprising to me. Some members of the Manson family had an obsession with Keith, and these Manson girls began camping under their home. At first, Annette just thought that they were groupies. Because of the lifestyle they had, it really wasn't that unusual for random people to be all around their property, like, hanging out. So she found them very odd, but, like, not threatening or anything. Mm -hmm. Then one night, they were sleeping, and the girls broke into their home and set off an alarm. She woke up to see three women, shaved heads, cross on their forehead, wearing cloaks, standing above their bed. Yeah. What? Yeah. 
There was a torch by the bed and Keith went nuts. Dougal was in the house. He ran in. I think he knocked one of them out. Luckily, the police came very fast, but they didn't know what was going on. So Keith and Annette and Dougal had to like go out with their hands up, like guns were drawn. It was like this crazy moment. And it was obviously extremely terrifying. But the police did end up arresting the girls. Mm-hmm. Annette remembers the girls being charged, but she never heard again about what actually happened to them after this. So she doesn't know if they went to jail or were released or what. That's crazy. Right? Was this was this after he was already in jail, jail like Charles Manson? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So this experience was kind of the final straw for their time in LA. And Keith agreed, yes, let's go, let's go home. Annette had really high hopes that settling back into England would settle him down and get him to a healthier place. We're about three years into their relationship now. Okay. By this point, Annette had left him a few times. She would stay at a friend's house for like a week or two, but she she was always going back to him. But going back to England felt like a new starting point. They returned in September of 1977. The Who were in full effect at this point, and Keith went straight into rehearsals. They were creating a new album, working on a tour. It really gave Keith a purpose. Their time in L.A. wasn't a success, and he did feel really rejected by L.A., though he really did a good job of making sure people there didn't want anything to do with him. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) He rejected himself. Yeah, but... After a while, even this new purpose didn't really stop him from the wild partying and drug taking. Annette recounts a horrifying night in early 1978 when she was hanging out at their place with Chrissy Wood, Ron Wood's Mm -hmm. ex, and their new baby. And she felt really tired and she went to go to bed with Keith. She woke up to this hard, painful pressure between her legs uh-oh. And she opened her eyes and saw a strange old man in their bed. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. She says that she turned over to Keith for help. And not only was he awake, but he was smiling. Oh, no, no. Annette ran out of bed and alerted Keith's new minder at the time who chased the man out. Jesus. Keith insisted that he had no clue who the dude was or how he got in there. And she never knew what like had he did to her or anything. But fuck. Yeah. She says like seeing the look on Keith's face, it was like evil and it really uh-huh. fucked with her. And so she left him again for like a couple of weeks. Like she just needed to get out of there. Yikes. Oh, that's so unsettling. Yes. Apparently during this time, Keith went on a coke bender with David Bowie. They used to draw together and they did talk about working on future projects, but both were at the height of their addictions. So obviously nothing came out of that. But I thought that was interesting to imagine them working together or doing blow together. Yeah, exactly. That one probably nothing productive ever came (laughs) of that, but it's nice to imagine. Yeah. Keith must have realized that he was in a bad spot because he did decide to take a real stab at quitting drugs and alcohol, which was good, except that he decided to do it cold turkey. That led to a seizure, hallucinations, bad withdrawal. Keith and the band were also realizing that Keith really couldn't play without alcohol. His body couldn't handle the energy. Like he needed that juice 
juice boost, yeah. you know? Yeah, well, it's like it's it's his nervous system is programmed a certain way and he can't get out of that. Precisely. Annette was starting to detach more from things. She wanted to take hold of her life again. She called her modeling agent. She was like, you know what? I This, is, this was my dream. I still want to do it. She got a gig. She decided to take it. It was a shampoo commercial. She went and did it. And when she returned home that night, she was wearing like big hair and makeup from the set. And Keith Mm -hmm. went nuts on her. I'm quoting her now. He said he wouldn't put up with me coming home looking like a hooker. Oh, my God. Right. And then he locked her out of the house and she had to like beg to get back in and everything like what? Very manipulative. Yeah. That's horrific. And that's only 22 at this point. And this is... Yeah, again, I was going to say, like, she's still... <laughs> yeah. And this is her only real relationship she's ever known. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine the confusion of being with a man like that while also, you know, coming into adulthood, learning about yeah. yourself. Yeah. She was very confused. Keith would treat her like shit. And then the minute he began to think that she wouldn't come back he would make half-hearted suicide attempts and beg her to come back. Oh my God. A lot of the times he would say that he didn't remember the attempts the next day. It was just very toxic, very toxic controlling. She basically gave him an ultimatum and the band did as well. You go to a clinic, you wean yourself off drugs and alcohol. You, you got to clean up or else it's all over type of thing. Annette and him had a great talk about the future Keith promised, I'm going to do my best. At this point, Keith and Annette moved back into Harry Nilsson's flat. Mm-hmm. Annette really enjoyed the time that they spent there. Keith was actually trying hard. A lot of the times they would just stay in and be cozy and cook and watch TV and cuddle and, you know, talked about future plans. Things were looking positive. She was even thinking, like, maybe one day we can have a child and see where this goes. So... Paul and Linda McCartney used to host these like Buddy Holly parties. Okay. I don't know how often it happened, but I know like a couple happened in the 70s and 80s. They'd have these get togethers. I think the Buddy Holly story came out that year and all these celebrities went for the premiere and then a party after. Annette really wanted to go, even though Keith wasn't that keen on it, but he knew that she wanted to. And so he agreed to. She says it was a really great night. She did see Keith do some blow, but he only had two beers. He was his happy self. Everyone had a great time. wasn't being destructive. And when they went home, Annette doesn't say this in her book, but I did some more research. And apparently when they got home, Keith took a bunch of pills, asked her to make her him some food. She did. He napped. And in the early morning, he woke up in a really shitty mood and asked for more food. They argued. I think he said something like, if you don't like it, you can fuck off. Like, make me dinner. Mm -hmm. She made it for him. He passed out again. And she went to sleep on the sofa to get away from his snoring. Right. So when she woke up later that afternoon, she noticed the flat was like eerily quiet. And she went to check on Keith and she found him dead. Oh, my God. This was September 7th, 1978. Wow. Interestingly, which I can't imagine is true, she says that the coroner reported zero liver damage, which seems insane to me. That's, yeah. that's impossible after his whole life. Exactly. Crazy. His official cause of death was an overdose of a drug, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, but Hermenervin, Hermenervin, 
which he was actually taking because he was an alcoholic and that drug is to combat alcoholism. Okay. He take he had taken 32 tablets. That's how many they found in his system. Ironically, wow. that's the same age that he was. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Annette also noted in her book that Keith was very conscious of not falling asleep with too much in his system. She says that he would actually kind of make himself throw up sometimes to get out what yeah. he could. Like he knew that was a risk and perhaps because these were prescribed drugs, he didn't have the same fear or obviously he forgot how many he'd been taking. Yeah. Uh, 32. It's also a crazy coincidence that it was Harry Nilsson's flat that they were staying in because four years previous, Mama Cass died there. Oh. Yeah. From the Mamas and the Papas. Wow. Yes. And Nielsen actually believed the flat was cursed and didn't want Keith Moon to stay there at first. But from what I read, they were all like, oh, you're crazy. Like, whatever. I believe that after Keith Moon died, Nielsen didn't want the place anymore. And I've mm -hmm. read that Pete Townsend actually bought the place off Nielsen. I believe okay. to kind of ensure it didn't become this creepy rock and roll shrine place type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Preserve their dignity type of thing. Right. So I wonder, does, does he still own it, do you think? And it's like... I wonder that too. I tried to look up to see like if he still does, but I couldn't find yeah. any information on that. Wow. Yeah. I'd love to know more about that. Seriously. But that's incredibly creepy, creepy coincidence. Mm -hmm. Annette... After Keith's passing, she moved in with her friend Sally for a while. She just had Sally and her and Keith's cats to keep her company. She does say that she went into a bit of like a party distraction mode, drinks, cocaine to kind of escape the reality. But she was never really into that anyways. And she, she never did it to excess. Apparently, she was actually offered Keith's jewelry and his gold records when he passed away, but she felt that it should all go to his mother, and she took nothing. Aw. Yeah. That's sweet. I think about a year after Keith passed, she met a man named Gareth, and within the year, she had married him, and they had a son named Oliver together. Hmm. Her book is really weird. It's split into two parts. The first half, she tells this story, and then... The second half, it's basically her going over everything that she, we just read in a Q&A form with the co-author. Huh. I was frustrated because the book ends with her saying that she moved to Surrey with Gareth and Oliver and had some downtime before life picked up again. And she ends it by saying, but that's another story. And like, I wanted oh. that story. I wanted her whole story. And maybe, yeah. I guess maybe the publishing company wanted her to focus more yeah. Keith but the fact that like it's in these two parts and it's like pretty repetitive yeah just give give me all of her story that's weird I've never I tried to do a little bit more research and I did find out that she went on to become a psychotherapist which I find fascinating considering what she's experienced with Keith mm -hmm. she is also an artist and the book features a few of her paintings okay I'm going to end this with a quote from her about her time with Keith. She says, I was a lover, a minder, and an observer. It was an experience for me. Subconsciously, that was my dream. I wanted to go out and find my adventure, and I sure did, and I wouldn't change it for anything. That makes sense. Yeah. It sounds like she wasn't left with too much, I don't want to say damage, but like she seems like 
pretty okay with how things turned out. And she seems to have found healthy family relationship after, after that. Exactly. But if he, if he had not died, I wonder. And if if they had had a kid together. He didn't have any children, did he? Um, I believe he had one kid with Kim. Kim. Yeah. Wow. What a story though. Like, yeah. It's interesting because, as you know, like Miss P has fun Keith Moon stories. And I feel like that's I couldn't have done what Annette did. Like, I couldn't have handled him on a daily basis. I feel like he was someone that, like, you'd want to spend a wild night with. And you're like, wow, like you're a maniac. Yeah, or like a weekend and then like and then let it go. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Not long term. I can't. That's a long time to spend with someone, Mm -hmm. especially someone that's that messed up i mean i yeah. feel for him because obviously there's something there but yeah crazy story i and it like i wonder what things that he said to her to keep her hanging on and to keep her around for four years because it's a long time to be with somebody who throws a glass ashtray at your head yes. and like narrowly misses you know absolutely constantly embarrassing you yeah sleeping with other people in front of you and she's still forming her identity too, because she's so young. So like this is this could have done a, like a number on her, and it feels like I don't know, maybe because she's a psychotherapist and she she knows because she's smart and self aware, she seems to have gotten through it relatively yeah. unscathed. But and that's also yeah. why like I wanted to hear more about her story. Like was hmm. she, was it her time with Keith that kind of inspired her to? learn about mental health like yeah yeah i wonder i mean she she went deep deep into training at an early age for that job Mm -hmm. anyway so yeah that's that's annette's story that's net and keith thank you so much ellen for joining me for this you are so welcome thanks for having me i i want to read this book if you're a keith moon fan any listeners out there it's I'm sure I didn't put in every story. Obviously, I can't, but it's it's still worth it. There, all, all the books mm-hmm. are worth it that we talk about on this podcast. So yeah, I will definitely be be looking this up. Awesome. Well, Ellen, thank you again. I'm gonna make sure that I post your Instagram link up on the show notes so people can go check you out. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode. And we'll see you soon. I got some really great books I'm reading right now. And I can't wait to present the next few. So sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Muses is researched, edited and produced by Links O'Leary. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. 
New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.